It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Happy birthday! Happy anniversary! Is it birthday or anniversary? It's difficult to say. I mean, possibly neither. But it's I mean, a milestone. It's a we're milestone. A, we're 150 episodes old. I know. Who'd have thought we'd get to 100? I did actually. I, I thought this. this and we've got, got balloons and like party hats, goodie yeah. bags. We're in fancy dress. Yeah, exactly. We both come as FDR, which is embarrassing. Yeah, we're we're gonna play like pass the parcel. Yeah, pin the tail on the podcast yeah we're gonna play do i look like a badger yeah, exactly all, our live shows all, all of the old hits can you believe it's, it's 150 episodes and almost three years basically yes yeah isn't that extraordinary yeah and we thought i mean it seems like no time since we were celebrating our 100th episode and we thought it's time for a bit of self-indulgence <laughs> <laughs> self-referential self-indulgence here we come no, we're trying to do it in a non-self-indulgent yeah, way, or not yeah. too self-indulgent. But that in mind, we do have a clip to play in, don't we, of the, the first we need to ever do a sort episode. of flashback noise. Yeah, Emma, can, can you drop a, the, some, some kind of a harp or woozy sound effect woozy to show sound. that we're transitioning back from the present day to episode one? Ed, hello. Good to be with you, Jeff. Do you really have nothing better to do than sit in my loft? I kind of... You know, checked out all the options, and uh, this I'm afraid this was the best on offer. <laughs> I think we should tell people about how we met, though, Jeff. Yes. Like uh, any couple. Th- let's do it. So Ed was on my radio show in the run-up to the 2015 election. People said you even made me sound vaguely human, which I thought was a sort of massive achievement on your part. <laughs> That's what I specialise in, making people sound human. I think we should talk to people about the environment we're in, though, Jeff. Yeah, so... so um when when I was thinking about this, that the world is going to rack and ruin and surely there is some positivity out there, I thought, I'm going to get in touch with Ed. And uh, I, I went round your house. I went into one of your two kitchens. Yeah, thanks for reminding me. <laughs> and uh, we said, yeah, let's, let's do a podcast where we, we talk to people with ideas. And then I told Ed that I had been given one of these Japanese toilets. Uh, and then I was... I mean, to be honest, that's why I agreed to do the podcast like, with you. Can, can we do I mean, it, it was the Japan, it was the Japanese toilet that did it. And, but for you me. haven't you haven't yet availed yourself. Well, of I mean, it. give me time. I've only been here fifteen minutes. I think. <laughs> now, now here is the amazing thing to me: we are one hundred and fifty episodes, yeah. almost three years in, more than ten million downloads, and you still haven't availed yourself of that toilet. 
Well, it malfunctioned for it a number of years. It was out of, of commission for a while. My, my son dropped the remote control into do- the toilet. It doesn't have appropriate privacy, that's the thing. What about if I just gave you keys to my house? Okay. Let you know, maybe one morning after Is it back in run. operation? Oh, yeah, very much so. Yeah. Now, we have a thing on the episode uh, called Stuff where people send in emails, and... I've gone back further than the first episode to your original email. Oh, wow. That you sent to a, a colleague of mine, Stuart Wood. Um, the Lord. Now, now the Lord. Lord. And, it, and the, it's, it's the 17th of March, 2017, 1350, 10 seconds, GMT, just to be exact. Uh, so, hi, Stuart. So I've had an idea kicking around in my head for a few months. And for my own sanity, I thought I'd ask the question, however ludicrous. Would Ed be interested in working on a podcast with me? I want to explore the new big centre-left ideas from around the world. I'd love to play the everyman. You've done that very well. And have Ed explain accessibly what's coming out of the think tanks, academia, and policy units. It's all very embryonic at the moment. I mean, Jeff, you are a, you are a visionary. Uh, you, you end the email by saying, I suspect this is preposterous. And if not, I'd love to talk. I mean, maybe preposterous. And you'd love to talk. Look at the brass neck of me sending, sending you an email no, like that. No, never mind the brass the neck. I've got a massive like reasons to be grateful. Never mind reasons to be cheerful to you. It's been fun, hasn't it, so it's far? It's been great fun, and uh, I've learned. I can't uh, believe you've saved that. And the beautiful thing is I'm looking at it, and it's printed out, <laughs> and it looks very sort of dogged. It's ripped. Ed exactly. sellotaped it. You know, it's obviously got great sentimental it's, it's value. Become, to it's become you. a family heirloom. Yes. It's become a family heirloom. Um, well, look, we're not just going to be sort of uh saying hasn't it been interesting we're gonna try to reflect a bit aren't we yeah on what we've learned during these 150 episodes and this is not a sort of this is not we're not writing our obituary here are we no not at all uh, we're just, this we're is just like it's roll on the next roll yeah. on the next 150 yeah, yeah here we are uh, and, and what's been interesting is we we do this on a week by week basis yeah, every week yeah, but um, what I mean is, there's there's no um, there's there's no grand plan. There's no we'll yeah. do this this year. Yeah. Um, we kind of do it one week to the next. But what's been interesting looking back over the episodes is there's there's very much themes that emerge. Exactly, um, and the first theme was around how to fix democracy. And we, as we said in the first intro, there was a strong sense a year after the Brexit referendum that politics was broken, the country was divided. Uh, early on, we looked at the potential power of votes at 16. And then in episode 20, both you and I were really sceptical on the way into this. Yeah. We had a revelation, didn't we? We did. Alex, who used to work on the podcast, kept saying to us, oh, there's, there's something called sortition. I think it's really interesting. And you we know, thought it was th- a terrible name. I think we sort of basically mocked him for it. Yeah. Said he was a nerd. Yeah. It sounded Which like is something pretty rich else. coming from me. <laughs> and me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> said it sounded like something from Harry Potter. Yeah. Um, but he said, no, no, it's, it's, um, it, there's a really good idea. And we did this episode and it was, it was like we'd been converted in the space of an hour or however long it was. Sortition is the technical word in the English language for this Athenian model of democracy whereby assemblies are created by drafting people by lot and inviting them to speak. It's more than an opinion poll. As a matter of fact, we use lottery uh, and sortition already every day, Uh, but it's it's in the worst possible form and we call it opinion polls. With an opinion poll, we make a random sample of people and we ask them what they think when they don't think. And here are the ideas. We, we ask a random sample of people what they think after they had a chance to think. And this is happening in Ireland right now. I think Ireland is perhaps the most innovative 
democracy in the West right now. Uh, the past couple of years, uh, Irish government has been bringing together random samples of citizens to come and talk not just on mundane matters, but really substantial, even constitutional matters. One of them was same-sex marriage a couple of years ago, and 100 people were brought together then. 33 were politicians, elected politicians. 66 were random citizens drafted by lot. And they came together for 14 months. They had to discuss a number of issues of the Irish constitution. The most controversial one was the same-sex marriage issue. And those people came together for a period of 14 months. They saw each other for one weekend every month. And they basically learned from each other learn from the experts they could invite, and were able to make a recommendation to the Irish government about what to do with same-sex marriage. And their recommendation was that the constitution should be adapted. Now, that went into a referendum, and that was the first time in history that a constitutional change was brought about thanks to working with a random sample of citizens deliberating with each other. I remember the thing that I was struck by when we did that first sortition episode was just by how reasonable and level-headed people are when they're given good information and, and just given time to thresh out a solution. Because if you remember, this was in the heat of Brexit. If you ever watched a vox pop of people on the on the television, it was also polarised and people didn't seem reasonable at all. And I was just amazed about hearing about these citizens assemblies i mean I, I think you're right and i think it's sort of in a way it's worth kind of marking the fact that one of the reasons for your motivation i think for the for the podcast was that think of any problem and there was somewhere around the world that was addressing it yeah and here was ireland on our doorstep you know and we weren't no one was paying any attention to, to what was going on in Ireland. And it's worth saying that the equal marriage referendum, which I think was 2015, was then followed in 2018. So after we did the episode um, by a, a referendum on abortion, which also began with the Citizens Assembly. And so I think in a way, I, I think you're completely right. It highlighted a different way of doing things. And and it was, I think it was part of... of of sort of looking looking outwards to to the to the solutions that existed and sortition has been a sort of a running a theme for us we we did and, and part of the reason we're doing this episode is to sort of because sometimes people will be will be latecomers to the um to the to the podcast and, and we can sort of highlight some episodes that might be worth listening to and episode 99 was on the written constitution it was a live show at the underbelly and the academic jeff king was talking about how uh the idea of a constituent assembly could help establish a written constitution. What I think it should be is a specially convened assembly, uh, technically a constituent assembly, sometimes called a constitutional convention, which would be composed of people that would write the constitution and put it directly to the people for refer approval by referendum. Now the and the Irish do didn't do that, but they have used a constituent as a de deliberative processes in the last few years. Indeed. So let me just distinguish between a citizens' assembly and a constituent assembly. Citizens' assemblies get together and deliberate about important issues, and then they have a report, and then that will go to the legislature, which will decide how to act on it. What I'm talking is about is different. They would actually write it. And it would go straight to the people. They'd consult Parliament, but Parliament wouldn't have a veto power on this. The Constituent Assembly would be uh, two-thirds directly elected, 
and one-third appointed uh, direct appointment of citizens chosen by sortition. And you, you do see them like quite often now, you know, they, they crop up in the domestic news and uh, more recently a number of common select committees established a citizens assembly on the climate crisis that's due to report in the next few months and um, a couple of months ago we spoke to becky willis who is involved in organizing the climate assembly about what it was like seeing it actually take place when i walked into that hotel in birmingham the first weekend and i saw 110 people there who were representative of the country as a whole. It was, you know, a a real heart-stopping moment because it's just incredible to see your own country sort of in miniature in one room and and to think that all those people are going to be helping you tackle, you know, the biggest challenge we face. And what surprised you about it? Not necessarily surprising, but the most striking thing for me is how what a responsibility the participants feel that they have and how how seriously they take the process and you know that really gives me faith in people's ability to to you know to think things through and to deliberate and to talk to each other and and come up with sensible answers it's it's just seeing that in practice is incredible We've been very keen on the podcast to present ideas and not to be sort of naysayers, but I think it's probably worth then us sort of reflecting a little bit on the sortition idea and its sort of strength and its challenges. I mean, I think its strength, as you said, is the kind of deliberation it produces. I think in Ireland, in the case of Ireland, I think it's definitely true on abortion and on equal marriage that the politicians that the public were bolder than the politicians expected them to be. So in a way, it's a way of politicians sort of testing the water. Right, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So that's important. I think, I think here's a sort of question, though, which is take the climate assembly issue. There aren't really any guarantees that the government's going to do it. I think in the Irish case, it was like it was a big proposal of the manifesto I think of the governing party and it was the sort of it was the kind of compromise that they came out with, I think, in relation to same sex marriage and maybe in relation to abortion. And so it was if you like it was up in lights that they were saying we're going to now this it wasn't a commitment of the government of the UK government. It was an initiative of the select committees. And, that you know, that's good. The select committees did this and it had David Attenborough and all those things. I guess the, 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 the question going forward is. Is there a way it's a funny thing for me to say or maybe it isn't is there a way to make life harder for governments to ignore them right 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 i mean i think i think that well that's one question yeah yeah. so we've got something called the independent climate change committee which reports on the government's targets on climate change and in a way it was a way of sort of binding the hands of government not completely because you can government can ignore the climate change committee but it's you know it's sort of harder to do yeah 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 yeah. you're, you're you're ignoring what the what the climate you know expert scientists are saying to you and so i suppose i suppose that's where a bit the jury is out and then i suppose the second question is the citizens jury is out the citizens jury is out and then i suppose the second question is in 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 the uk we haven't really tested the legitimacy question so i suppose in the irish case it preceded a referendum didn't it right it was like a mi- i'm just thinking aloud but it was yeah, it was yeah, a yeah. micro 
it was a sort of micro it laid the ground microcosm for, it, yeah. for then the people in general to decide yes now i don't think anyone britain britain is hastily wanting more referenda <laughs> um but i suppose so i suppose that's that it's that kind of transmission belt mm. uh question but look the other thing is to say is lots of local areas are doing their own climate assemblies but anyway, we, we think it's an idea that's got a lot going for it. Yeah, and, and you're hearing more and more about it. And I think we probably owe an apology to Alex, uh, old researcher, yeah. for yeah. making fun of the suggestion. Yeah. And also Ed owes him many apologies for making fun of his shirts. So can I just say, yeah. um, uh, if you, yeah. you, you will be able to hear yeah. that Ed and I are recording this outdoors. We've reunited. We're two metres apart. We've yeah. reunited for the 150th episode. Now, unfortunately, Sky News have got wind that we're doing it and they've got the copter up, the helicopter. <laughs> The chopper is above us, trying to get exclusive shots of us recording episode one fifty. They were tracking your bike ride, weren't <laughs> yes, they? Yeah, weren't they from bicycle. Stoke Newington? Yeah, with sort of commentary by sort of Hugh Edwards. <laughs> <laughs> um, should we move on to the next area? Yes, and, and it's been it's been interesting for us. I think uh, sort of casting our mind back uh, and looking at the episodes and. The second area we wanted to highlight was big tech because we've returned to this issue uh, again and again. And I will be the first to say, I think when, when we first talked about the podcast, I had it in my head that big tech would be providing us with solutions and ideas right. you know i thought oh the yeah. the amount of data that that's amassed maybe good can come of it and i've become sort of very unconvinced that that will happen with the way that big tech is set up it's ever since you were having a conversation with your wife about the orient express or something and then suddenly weren't you having a conversation about yeah. the orient express in yeah front of, we were sat on the sofa in front of Siri came or, on for the orient express yeah. said, oh, i'd love yeah. a program i said i'd love to go yeah. on the orient express and then Every time I looked at my phone, there was an advert for it. It was so weird. Yeah, exactly. That 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 sort of that made you yeah. tad a tad suspicious, just a, a little bit. Yeah. Um, and our second episode talked about um, the issues of, of what we call platform monopolies in the light of Sadiq Khan, the mayor of London's decision to temporarily ban Uber in London in September 2017. And we asked tech academic and writer Nick Cernacek about his idea for a public sector alternative to tech companies like uber so we can think of an alternative here and i think the best sort of version of an alternative would be tfl developing their own That's transport for london transport for london the, the sort of local legislators for transport within london um basically uh building their own app which would be enable drivers to use their app to have all the same sorts of services and efficiencies of the uber app but just owned and regulated by tfl itself now, what what does that actually mean? Does that mean, because it's not just Uber, there are lots of other companies, there's black cab drivers. Does that mean everybody would be on that platform or would it be, as so is the public is the public sector, TFL, just providing a, a sort of a, a platform which anyone can go or is it like a competitor to Uber? How should we think about that idea? So my ideal situation, without thinking about sort of the politics of this, would be that black cabs are on it, minicabs are on it, Uber's on it, whatever they want, they're all on it, subject to basic regulations. Now, I have to be sort of honest with you. I think of all the areas that we've studied and talked about, this is the area where it's much easier to describe the problems and the dangers than it is to, to provide solutions. It just, I mean, you know, we're talking obviously during the pandemic and we've seen Jeff Bezos's 
wealth got by sort of eighty million dollars or some unbelievable amount of money. Um, and it's just really hard this to work out. And you know, we've been talking about the Facebook ad boycott in recent recent weeks. It's really hard to know where the solutions lie in this, isn't it? It is, and we hear some great ideas. I loved that idea, for example, that uh, Transport for London or any kind of metropolitan uh, transport government um, organisation could could own the infrastructure on which all the tech companies operated. I, I really like that as an idea, but so so often with this... We will hear from people with great ideas, you know, op- open source or cooperative yeah. ways of doing things. But it, it feels too, I mean, I was going to say it feels too David and Goliath, but David yeah. did okay in that scenario, doesn't it? Yeah. But you, you need the governments to, to break up and curb the powers or, or of these companies need, or open them up in system- some way. You need yeah. something systemic. And we, yeah, you and just do. to give a little sneak preview, we had a fascinating conversation which will be aired uh, over August with Wendy Liu and mm. her book Abolish Silicon Valley and in a way I think Wendy Liu is she's a sort of she recounts her experience of Silicon Valley but also you know the real challenge I think the challenges of doing something different but I was really struck in that episode that we just heard yeah. from when when we talked about how the analogies with the phone companies in America yes. Um, yes. 100 or more years ago or even the railroads how those are examples of private companies you know, getting too big and then the state coming in and opening up for the infrastructure and that stuff about the research and development, uh, wasn't it? Like 20% of AT&T, I think, um, had to go to research and development and any idea that came out of it, the patents, had to be open to the public and then all this innovation came out of that. You're such a policy wonk. There you were with your your humble email of March 2017. (laughs) You're out wonking me here. Uh, You've sort of led us kind of helpfully into some of the other things we did on on big tech. We we did a a really interesting interview with Shoshana Zuboff in episode 28, and she then produced a very, very renowned book. It's it's slightly the sort of the kind of Stephen Hawking book of the of the kind of tech sector, you know, the age of surveillance capitalism. Um, this, uh, we, we were sort of a, slightly ahead of that. Uh, we did an episode on protecting uh, children from tech. And then when Elizabeth Warren was running for the Democratic nomination, we explored what her ideas would mean. And in, in episode 79, we asked Sally Hubbard from the Open Markets Institute in the US about the way she would approach breaking up the power of tech monopolies. I would look at some of the anti-competitive mergers that were mistakenly allowed and start to unwind them. Things like Facebook's acquisition of Instagram or Google's acquisition of DoubleClick. I would do a whole sector inquiry into the tech sector, which the FTC has started. Um, But I would make sure that we had an entire huge team of technologists that could not just understand the anti-competitive behavior of the past, but the anti-competitive behavior of the future. A big part of the problem is that, as I like to say, these tech platforms, they are controlling the game and they're playing the game too, right? No one wants to compete against a company that is controlling the rules of the competition. And that's what's happening with all of these platforms. So the idea is you have to choose, you know, Amazon, are you going to be a marketplace or are you going to be a seller on the marketplace? I mean, it's interesting this because it's very um, appropriate time-wise because this earlier this week, the the four big tech 
companies all gave testimony to Congress, and, and Jeff Bezos was being asked precisely about this question of, you know, uh, uh, cross cross selling. So, you know, maybe you've been on. Well, we've both been on a journey on on both of uh, on all of the episodes, but but maybe on tech, it'd be interesting to hear what, where where do you sort of end up now compared to where you were. I think I didn't realise my own privilege when it came to tech and data in in some respects. I think you know I remember saying on an episode, "Oh, I don't care as long as I can just use all this stuff." Like the yeah. If the price I pay is my yeah. data, then, you know, I don't, I don't care because I'm getting to use a good end, end product. And, you know, having these conversations and finding out more made me think about what a privileged position that is to be in. And, and you know, what tech companies and potentially governments having access to your data means for different types of people and how dangerous that is and how it needs curtailing. So that, that's that's one way I've definitely changed my opinion. Yeah, I think... I mean, I, I sort of, I suppose the way I think about it is, you know, we've done enough episodes that suggest that technology can be used for good purposes. Undoubtedly, yeah. Um, we're not in the sort of, where you just sort of smash it all up or, or, or sort of get rid of it all, but it's got to be shaped. I mean, you've got to have government. And there is this libertarian streak along, among a lot of technologists, isn't there? Yeah. Which is kind of a problem. And, and, and in a sense, I suppose we know much more what a problem it is now than we did then because of Cambridge Analytica, what happened in the 2016 presidential election, the far right. The, the problems are much more apparent. Yes, they are. And I, I think maybe even the attitude not necessarily with the billionaires who own these companies but maybe even with the people working in them and writing about them is is beginning to change and maybe the answer is to the extent that we've got one and we've got to be honest about you know whether we when we've got answers and don't have answers is you need all you need action on multiple fronts you need to tackle the anti-competitive practices you need better regulation around things like hate speech and so on and you need to think about how data is owned and and rights to to portability of data which which is really important you're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Well, for our next theme, uh, we, we could start it by talking about one of our great lads holidays that we've done. Cause we've we've, we've oh, done a couple, yeah. haven't we? we? We went to... Austria. Yes, Czernohorski. Jürgen Czernohorski. Yes. Who had one of the most uh, impressive 
offices and names that I've, and names that I've ever Twitter been. Twitter handle, yeah. Um, but I, I think the, the the greatest trip that we've done is when we went on our lads' holiday to Iceland. You don't think you're going to get the video released if you by sort of buttering me out? <laughs> I think the public need to see it. I, I really think the public do not need to see it. We recorded. I mean, there's a many lot things of- <laughs> the public don't need to see, and this is one of them. This is high up the list. We recorded a lot of footage of me and Ed in a in a hot tub. Yeah. And it wasn't a hot tub, was well, it? it was geothermal. geothermal spa, yeah, yeah. But um, it was the sort of belching noises that came from the geothermal spa that I'm were the not sure of, they were coming from the geothermal pie- spa. de resistance. <laughs> uh, that sort of yeah. But it was uh, it, it was it was a wonderful moment. And it produced reasons to be Icelandic, didn't it? Mm, which but, has been one of our favourite episodes and it's yeah. on one of the themes that when we look across the 150 episodes uh it's it's very much on one of the themes that keeps coming up again and again which is how do we promote gender equality and we got in there early didn't we with episode three we looked at the gender pay gap with mp jess phillips and victoria budson from the women and public policy program at harvard and actually i was very keen to do that episode because it was about an experiment in boston which we need to kind of follow up actually see how it's going which was I think I'm right in saying that it was banning employers from asking about previous salaries when they were hiring new employees because that was finding a sort of ratchet down effect That's right. among women in particular. So if women started off on lower salaries, it kind of then cascaded, cascaded through. So maybe that's something for us to um, follow up. We, we've since returned to the gender divide in the jobs that people do. Episode 39, gender equality in sport. Episode 94, positive masculinity. Episode 127, uh, ideas around shared paternity leave. We love father's leave, don't we? Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, I mean, as in use it or lose it, father's leave as a way to, 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 to change the workplace and family responsibilities. And universal childcare, episode 105. And, and But we wanted to highlight, didn't we, the the Iceland trip, and, yeah. and not for the, the geothermal pools. No, special though that was. Special. I mean, we were just hugely impressed by everybody we talked to, but especially uh, friend of the pod. Now I think it's safe yes. to say uh, she filled in for me she that time, did. didn't she? When I yeah. had some kind of emergency. Yes, she did. Katrin Jakobs Dottier, and we asked why Iceland has topped the global gender gap index, i.e., most gender equal, for eleven years running. Uh, and the UK is only 21st. Probably the reason for us being number one is that every time we see that list, we say, why is that happening? Because we never, we never cease to fight for more gender equality. And we haven't reached the status that we can call Iceland the paradise for gender equality. But we're doing some things right. And I think, uh, you know, I was born in 1976 so the year before that, we had a, a famous women's strike in Iceland. Women walked out from their workplaces. Uh, I think it was around 2 p.m. And they said, we're not getting paid, you know, for more work. So we're just going to leave our offices now. And it was a huge event. Uh, everybody participated. Uh, in the years after that, we had a, a women's all-women's party uh, running both for local communities and for parliament and that changed everything in the other parties so we have like a, a 40 years of history of women really campaigning in Iceland still campaigning for women's rights making enormous systematic changes that have actually made it possible for example for me to be in politics I have three sons I wouldn't have wanted to have to choose between having children 
and being a politician. And you would have to choose, you know, maybe you could do this if you were a very privileged person with a lot of people you could hire to do this for you, but I'm not. So without universal child care, and, you know, all my sons have gone to the kindergarten at uh, the age of 18 months or so, and the shared maternity and paternal leave. Uh, so me and my husband have actually shared the responsibilities for having those children. I wouldn't be here. Definitely not. And I, th- I think what's really interesting listening to that again isn't that these Nordic countries are just inherently better at this stuff. It's that the strength of the women's movements and yeah. the, the, the women's strike yeah. that Katrina mentioned there, it, it pushes it up the agenda. I think at this point we should probably also just make a side note of um, how sort of brilliant our early conversation with Jacinda Arden was as well. Yeah. Um, because we talked to her before... I mean, I can't say before she was famous, but she was Prime Minister of New Zealand. But before she'd achieved worldwide notoriety, don't you yeah, think? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and she was just a sort of fantastic leader, clearly incredibly sort of um, vis- sort of visionary person. I think we sort of felt that then, didn't yeah, we? Yeah, just brilliant. And we should mention, actually, that uh, over the next few weeks, uh, one of the episodes yes. we've got coming out will be a conversation with former Australian Prime Minister Julia Gillard, who has spoken to a whole bunch of women leaders, uh, including... Jacinda Ardern and, and Theresa May, Hillary Clinton, and others about a book. We're, she's we're not talking to Theresa May, Hillary Clinton, <laughs> and others, although they're welcome. <laughs> but about a book she's co-authored on on women and women leaders and yeah. women in leadership. It was a great. It was, in fact, she, she, we had recently an email suggesting we do this, and we she had just done the uh, interview. But um, and and I mentioned the episode on um, well, well, our interest in in paternity leave and. I think of all the ideas on the podcast, this is one where it's I've, it's really sort of sunk in in a way it hadn't before. The way in which use it or lose it, fathers leave, i.e., leave that's allocated to the father, really could be transformative, both for I the workplace so. and family responsibilities and, 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 and society. Think, but I think people think about it as a sort of quite a narrow thing about, or not narrow, but an important thing about fathers bonding with their kids. It's about so much more yeah, than yeah, that. Yeah. It's about expectations of who does the childcare. It's about the workplace. You know, the Swedish. I think it's Swedish, isn't it? Latte papas. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, where where do we get to on this? Um, we, we've just reached 34% women MPs in Parliament. Now, that might sound better than it was, and it is better than it was, but I think it's worth saying Denmark, Norway, Finland, Iceland, Sweden have had that kind of representation for about 40 years, mm-hmm. where, about where they were. And, you know, it's quite interesting. Is the more you look into it, the more you realise how behind we are. Shared parental leave, which is not use it or lose it leave, but the fact that mothers and fathers can share the allocated leave well that was a policy again introduced in parts of scandinavia in the 1970s and they then concluded it wasn't working at different times admittedly and moved to a use it or lose it system so you know we've got to change policy we've got to change culture but as you said i think it's the social movements and the you know politics and the pressure is partly what drives the change so the Nordic countries, you know, are a progressive end of the spectrum. But how much do you think movement in a direction by countries which are our peers, Western European peers, how much do you think if, if policies start to change 
in those countries, that then has a knock-on effect in the UK. Because I can sometimes feel we're really parochial and don't Well, I think look- that's true. I mean, I think that's... Isn't that one of the things that we've learnt in this? It kind of relates back to what I said about the Irish Citizens' Assemblies, but you sort of feel like Scandinavia... And, OK, Scandinavia has a certain sort of reputation, a certain history, but it can sort of operate in this its own bubble. And we just say, well, that's not possible here, or... It was just even, it's not even that people know about it and think we can't do that here. It's just... It feels like the Scandinavians have this tradition around gender equality, which was established early, and it's then sort of rippled through policy. And that's the thing, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, a more gender equal cabinet, parliament, and so on does change policy. It's a slow ripple, though. And the other area that we really wanted to discuss, and it has featured a lot on the podcast, is around the climate crisis. It's arguably the biggest shift in the political conversation since we, since we started. We did a number of episodes on climate early on, including talking to architect of the Paris Agreement, Christiana Figueres, and then a series of events around the end of 2018, start 2019, pushed climate up the agenda. The, the UN report saying there was a decade to really stop irreversible climate change in in October 2018. Uh, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez and the Green New Deal, the rise of Greta Thunberg and the school climate strikes in January, February 2019, and then Extinction Rebellion around April um, of the same year, of of last year. Um, I mean, I I do think it's this kind of race against time, to use a cliche, and, and I sort of feel like the science is moving so quickly um, but at the same time, the movement is moving as well. And, and in February 2019, we went down to the school climate strike in Parliament Square and asked the young people why they were there. Tell us why you're here today. Because this is such an urgent issue that I think that the government really needs to kind of actually address because they can make promises, they can go to the Paris Climate Accord, they can say we'll do this, but then we see no actual change. They need to make a change and they need to do it now while we have the time because there will not be time in the future for this. I think this is our chance, this is the students' chance to show off that what really matters. And our climate change is something that we the younger generation have to deal with instead of the older generation. Can we please get a picture? Of course. <laughs> yes, we are, Bob, and I like your sign. Thank you. So I thought we would come into this demonstration, this protest, because Ed believes the children are our future and he cares deeply about what the planet will look like for them in 10, 20, 30 years' time. In actual fact, it looks like he's here because he's being millie-mobbed. There's levels of millie-fandom that we haven't previously seen. Uh, it's, it's like Beatlemania, but it's Ed-mania. You were in your element being asked for all those selfies. I mean, I can't think who decided to put that clip in. (laughs) (laughs) It is one of the most... I mean, honestly, I argued with Joel so, like, (laughs) hard to take that clip out, you know. It is one of the most endearing things about you, how much you enjoy people asking you for a selfie. And, you know, when I'm with you and that happens... endearing, is it? I mean, I do think that the stories people tell you and the things people say to you can really... You know, they really sort of stick, stick, stick with you. And and I and actually, well, I think if you, if you can like listen to people's stories, maybe that's that's the thing. Also, it's made, it's what it's 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 made me very familiar with a facial expression that I hadn't really encountered before, which is when you say to people who ask you for a selfie, "Do you want Jeff to be in it as well?" 
<laughs> because they want to be polite and not hurt my feelings. But, look, but they don't want me to be in the selfie. No, but there have been notable people in the, on this podcast. I mean, David Runciman is one of the people who springs to mind who have gone weak at the knees about being interviewed, not by me, but by interviewed by you. To the extent that he cropped you out of the selfie that the three of us took. Is that right? I don't know, probably. Oh, uh, probably. <laughs> That's what I have to live with whenever we do a live show. Um, speaking of live shows, uh, a show we did last year, we spoke to climate lawyer turned Extinction Rebellion activist Fahana Yamin. And she echoes the experience of lots of people in the climate movement who joined Extinction Rebellion because they felt politics wasn't working on climate. And we're going to play a clip of her talking about why her experience of representing small island states like the Marshall Islands at the Copenhagen Climate Talks in 2009 eventually led her to join Extinction Rebellion. So even back then, uh, all of these countries were screaming and shouting about the existential threat to them, to their cultures, to their people, because they were experiencing it already um, and they were very, very concerned. And we basically have taken a, a decade to hear them. And I've joined Extinction Rebellion because, you know, they were a very active movement in sounding the alarm bell much more loudly and clearly. It's not that we weren't doing that before. You know, we were churning out report after report. The scientists were arguing, but I feel that the politicians and everyday citizens weren't really listening loud you, enough. So you had to sort of do something quite kind of crazy. And you glued yourself to the shell building. I think we've got a, a picture of you. Uh, that's you. We're glued to the pavement. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> See, what I took away from that conversation was that she chastised me for eating Alfonso mangoes. Was that... We, we brought them as a prop, did we? I think so, yeah. We were talking about the, uh, the environmental impact of my favourite mango. I think, you know, it is really interesting about Fahana because it's this sort of what you might say the inside approach and the outside approach. You know, she's been a sort of insider, but for the outsider countries. Um, and I think she decided you know, to try the outside approach as well. And I, and I think I think it sums up in a way the maybe quite a lot about this podcast, which is how does change happen? It partly happens from outside pressure and it partly happens from inside action. But, you know, it's the two have to go together. And look, we've covered a lot on climate, um, how we need to ne reach uh, net zero emissions from shifting to renewable energy, episode 52, to planting more trees, tree distribution, episode 97, changing the way we use land, episode 130, how we travel, including more cycling, episode 84, and walking, episode 125. And then very recently with Chris Boardman and Jeanette Sadiq Khan, um, we also, and this is another, maybe our scandophilia, um, we, we talked to Christina Boo from Norway's Electric Vehicle Association about why Norway does so much better than the UK on electric car sales. And it is extraordinary. I think it's something like 50% of market share. It's, it's against, unbelievable. Against 3% yeah, yeah. in the UK. And we asked Christina on episode 93 why. First of all, I, I want to stress that Norwegians are not very different from you know, uh, other European <laughs> inhabitants, really. We, we are not more environmentally friendly or more, it's, it's not, that's not the case. What is really the difference here is that we've had politicians that have um, been working uh, and, and been willing to, to, to make the necessary measures uh, or, or introduce the necessary measures to, to make this, uh, to, to make this happen. And it is uh, really very simple. Uh, in UK, in Germany, in most other European countries, or all really, 
buying an electric car is still a lot more expensive than buying an petrol diesel uh, engine car, an ICE car, internal combustion engine car. And in Norway, it's more or less the same price. And how did we do this? Well, we tax the purchase of cars. So buying a car that pollutes costs a lot of money, and we don't tax electric cars. So we tax what we don't want, and we promote what we want, and that is working. So Sometimes when we do episodes on... Uh, the, the climate crisis. Yeah, I'll, I'll feel really dispirited about the science and how slowly yeah. things are moving. But just as as we've been looking at the various conversations we've had uh, across these 150 episodes, what's incredible to me is I feel like even when we're not doing an episode on that subject, there's so often an environmental component to an idea. Um, it's it's something that factors into I would say almost 75 percent of the conversations that we have and because they're all because you mean they they're they're sort of encourage a low carbon yeah exactly yeah there's there's some way in which they're they're adjacent or they share those goals or those goals have been thought about and i think that that can without being pollyanna-ish that can be really encouraging and i do i do think one really important theme which we have tried to explore and and i've said it a lot as a um uh, over the years is um you know i would i make this maybe joke which is that you know martin luther king didn't say i have a nightmare he said i have a dream and i think we've tried to reflect you know that positivity if not, you think not about what the green new deal is it's yeah, exactly that, exactly it? and yeah. it's sort of economic justice and and you know someone from extinction rebellion said to me you know what you're when i was talking about this they said what you're saying is that the environmental movement's got to become a working class movement and i was kind of saying well i guess yes you know it's this sort of you know if you're if you're I think it's partly what inspires people, but it's also, and, and it's not to say there isn't, you know, room for an importance of sacrifice, but but it is it is trying to say, if we're not about creating better lives for people, we're not going to win. But it can be about better lives for people. You know, walking and cycling. You know, we we heard we that recent episode with with Jeanette and Chris. Um, uh, you know, healthier eating, uh, planting trees. We've learned the importance of green space during coronavirus. Um, I think all of that is really, I think, really, really powerful and um, uh, and really important. And, you know, as important it is to to give a platform to these ideas and find out what people are working on. Um, something we've always been keen to do, I think, is is talk about how change happens, how we get from talking about these ideas to seeing them in action and um we've been keen to look at what movements strategies organizations can help bring about change Do you remember early on i was visiting my in-laws in chicago the fat shallot yeah um, that's my, not your in-laws no it's uh, my brother-in-law's yeah. food truck yeah. um and in between going and getting sandwiches from his yeah. food truck I, I managed to um go and talk about community organizing yes um with with somebody who'd worked with Obama in his yes, early days as a, yes. as a as an organizer, exactly. yeah. And since then, we've looked at trade unions, which you can find in episode fourteen, the power of protest, episode sixty, divestment, which has become a much bigger issue since Definitely. we talked about in episode seventy-seven, single issue campaigns, eighty-six, direct action, episode one hundred and eight. And uh, I just to mention single issue campaigns, you know, I I. Just it really springs to mind uh, Gina Martin yes. and her campaign on upskirting. Yeah, yeah, uh, against upskirting and to have a law on upskirting. You know, that was somebody who wasn't involved in politics, 
had a sort of something happen to them. Yeah. And she got really sort of engaged in these um, in, in these issues. And similarly, Matt Zarb about gambling. Gambling, yeah, yeah. Um, back to the, the episode of, on community organising. It was Jerry Kelman. Yes. I spoke to Jerry Kelman from the National Community Reinvestment Coalition. Uh, and I talked to him about what community organizing involves in practice and the ideas of Saul Alinsky, who was one of the early figures behind it. So first most fundamental tool of organizing uh, is to talk to people one on ones. So I in a given day, I would talk to 10 people. And in that process, learn about the area from their perspective, but also begin to form a relationship and begin to uh, get a sense about what it might take to get this person to take a step forward in a different kind of way. Uh, we might not tackle a root cause right away. We might try to go slowly. But eventually, we're, we're, we're looking at the root causes. Why, why, why does it happen? Not how do we treat the symptoms of it? And there's a lot of history of community organizing here in Chicago. It's the, the birthplace, really, of that in America. It is. It is. And that's because uh, uh, Alinsky was mentored by John L. Lewis, who was one of the significant labor leaders in the United States. And his thing was to build coalitions. So Linsky with language would, you, would be self-interest. I, I, I tend not to use self-interest these days. I talk about uh, what it takes for people to change their lives. And I say, if you can initiate relationships based on mutuality, you can change your life. And, you know, after the 2015 election, I went and did some uh, course in community organizing, as you know, um, which led to a campaign in my constituency against Bright House, the, the manufacturer of white goods or the or seller of white goods at vastly inflated um, prices. And, of course, this whole issue of, of, of movements and how change happens has kind of come into sharp focus with the rise of Black Lives Matter over the last few months. And it's shown the power, again, of, 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 of mass movements. And this June, we asked lawyer Matthew Ryder how important this kind of activism can be in bringing about change. And this was episode 142. It's extremely powerful. I, I think um, it doesn't happen without a level of activism outside. And that, that happens in two ways. And from, for people listening in, they can understand that their activism can really contribute. The first way is to support those community organizations that are being active. I can tell you from personal experience that when you have community groups or small organizations that are working on these issues, when they are lobbying those in political positions of power and they have access to those in positions of power, it makes a massive difference to the conversation that takes place in the room. It's huge. Um, and having the right people in positions of power, you know, Sadiq Khan's administration, whoever it is, you know, making sure that you have people who understand these issues is really important. And seeing young people on the street of all ethnicities saying, we want to do something about the lives of black people in this context of policing is immensely powerful. It means that those who have that intention in politics already have the wind behind their uh, wings and they can say, this is really important. Look what's happening in the street. And those who are skeptical about it and say, no, the public isn't interested in that are faced with a huge amount of people saying we actually are black lives matter to us. So I think it's enormously powerful and the kind of activism you're seeing now makes a massive, massive difference. Yeah, something we've talked about, you know, increasingly over the last six months is that making the case for big ideas and big changes really hard and what an important role movements and campaign groups have to play in shifting the national zeitgeist, especially when you're this far out from a general election and you've got a government with a majority. Um, these, these types of campaigns can really shift the conversation. And, and 
you know, even thinking about the change in conversation between our episode on Empire and we episode 102. Yeah. Um, and we we should give a real shout out to that um, uh, to that episode with Gaminda Bambra because it was it really sort of opened my eyes. You know, it was sort of we had this hunch, didn't we, that we weren't taught about Empire when we'd been. It in, was sho- it's shocking. Schools and 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 then and then I think we did a show of hands. Yeah, we it? did. And this just sea of hands went up, saying no, they hadn't been. It was unbelievable. We've we've had some quite special moments at the live shows, I think, but that's one that just really sticks. And also, that we only paid off the national debt for bailing out the slave owners, which was forty percent of our national income yeah. in twenty fifteen. Yeah, I know. It was. It was um, shocking. And, and maybe the sort of what happened in the 2019 general election has sort of reminded us, uh, demonstrated to us, and we've got more engaged in it, I think, that, that part of our job as a podcast isn't just to present ideas, but how do you create the circumstances in which those ideas are going to um, grow and thrive? Uh, yeah, are going to grow and, and, and thrive and, and succeed. And I suppose if you look at how much the Black Lives Matter movement out of a, a terrible situation has has shaped and changed the conversation in in just the past few months um it shows that the, the these movements you know pe- people are there is more popular than donald trump now in america the black right? lives matter movement yeah significantly more popular which tells you something and you see the change happening yeah i, I suppose we should also say it's been really hard to choose these themes i mean you know, we want economic inequality has been another big theme of ours, and we could have selected lots and lots of episodes, and we'd encourage people to go and look at the back catalogue of uh, of issues because that's been a really important theme. I think we should probably talk about the most important group uh, um, around the Beatles. Our, our, our podcast. No, our listeners. <laughs> I mean, one thing I want to flag up because this was very important to us is people don't have any doubt about where we're both coming from politically but we try to make this as open as possible for people who aren't of a particular political persuasion and i i do think that's important and you know you know sometimes people email us saying you know i haven't traditionally been of the left or i haven't traditionally been a labor voter or whatever it is and and i'm really keen on that you know i, I sort of uh, yeah i think it was really important to us from the off to to, to some extent divorce the ideas from any just put, yeah. let the ideas stand on their own merits we we did a bit of a shout out i think on twitter and facebook about people episodes people really liked lots of people talked about episode 50 from edinburgh with karen mccluskey talking about her work tackling gang violence in scotland i think it's really that is, was a great episode another live show wasn't oh, it yeah i think we both teared up on stage yeah. listening to her talk to talk about the work well it was an did. extraordinary episode because we had Karen, and then we had, we should give a shout out to all the comedians we've had on and the cheerful people, but we then had Louisa O'Milan yes. talking about her t- mother's terrible experience. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and her terrible experience with her mother's illness and some of the sort of, you know, uh, some of the issues around that. Some of the, some of the issues around the treatment that she'd, she'd got. Yeah. Um, um, uh, so that was, that was one that came up a lot. Episode 37. Rethinking Economic Success with Kate Rayworth, who wrote Donut Economics, uh, got a lot of mentions, um, which was, I think that was an episode that made us really think about what we value in the economy. Yep. And it's something that, that we then came back to. Uh, Including with episode. Lord Gus O'Donnell, former cabinet secretary. People loved Reasons to be Pirate, our bonus episode from April 2018. We'd really recommend that episode. Yeah, with Sam Conifiende. Yeah, yeah, his book, Force, Force of Nature. Be, be More Pirate. And we've had. Lots of people flagged up the conversation with Katrin Jakobs-Dottier. 
Including Neil Oddy, who says, why yeah. can't Katrin Jakobsdottir be a permanent co-presenter? Do you think she's got time? I don't know. We should mention that over the next few weeks, you will hear these summer conversations. We've got some fantastic people lined up, as we've already mentioned. But also on the website and in our newsletter, which you must sign up for, we're going to try and curate some lists of episodes around themes, um, the kind of stuff we've been talking about today and uh, some other bits and pieces. So make sure you subscribe to the newsletter. Go to cheerfulpodcast.com. And look... I didn't want the episode to end without a little sort of nice surprise. Um, and uh, so we, we sort of racked our brains uh, as to who who might be a nice surprise guest for you. Uh-huh. And um, and uh, we, we went for somebody who is, in some senses, a sort of global leader. Um, she's admired, I think, around the world. She's played a special role in this podcast. Yes, it's your mother-in-law, Lynn oh, Barron. No. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Hello. Hello. Lynn Barron. Yes. Who's calling? Someone with a funny accent? It's Ed Miliband and your son-in-law, Jeff Lloyd. Well, Ed and I are sitting. We're being very socially responsible. We're two metres apart. We're sitting in his back garden doing a retrospective, 150 episodes of Reasons to be Cheerful. And uh, We were trying to think of the most appropriate person who who summarised the warmth, the, the vivaciousness, the dynamism the compassion of the podcast and i came up with you lynn i was thinking who's he is this going to be michelle oh aren't you guys the sweetest how are you coping with lockdown lynn you and joe oh we're doing actually we're doing great we're not bored i'm working from home i'm loving working from home i wear shorts and my clients can't tell you do the zoom therapy yeah very well and we're reading and walking and then staying inside And there's a little boy in London I like to look at every day. Oh, that's your grandchild, Jean. Not me. And then I listen to a couple of podcasts. Uh, Reasons to be cheerful is always at the top of the list. By the way, the one on Facebook, do I get to say my two favorites? Yeah, go on. Yes, please, yeah. yeah. Facebook was very, very interesting to me. And what was the other one? The transgender. Ah, interesting. That was a very moving episode, actually. Definitely, definitely. And we, I'm glad... Very Lynn, moving. I'm, because very we moving. talked to the father of a trans child, didn't we? And, yeah. Uh, who, is, who is anonymous, but um, he, it was really interesting. Sure. And, and we'd really recommend people go back to and listen to that one. And, Lynn, it's been great for me to get the chance to meet you. And you were a brilliant babysitter to my children, uh, and you di- you avoided them or me getting arrested by leaving them alone in the hotel room. Um, Remember, you were going to be arrested, and yeah. you and you owe me big time, I, Ed. But I, I you do. took me out for burgers. I do. Remember, I, and we have beers. I do. I definitely. Um, you, I, I owe you big so, time. So, Lenny, you saying the burgers and the beer weren't enough? He's still. He's no, still I in owe your her debt. big time. No, no. You also took me to the House of Commons. It's true. Tea, I did. Oh, I Ed, did. I owe you. No, no, no. <laughs> I, I definitely. Well, I def- you guys, congratulations. I have something really important to say that cheese and and butter, where where did you even think of that together? It's so interesting, isn't it? It's mm. such a big it's such a big tra- Atlantic divide. I mean it's bigger than tomato tomato. I mean two it, nations divided by I a sandwich. Know. You're not in favor of the butter on the cheese sandwich, Lynn. No, 
and I love butter. I think butter is so delicious you don't mix it with anything. Interesting. Just bread and butter. So what, do you, what else are you doing? On the show today for the 150th episode. We've been sitting and we've been reminiscing and we've been playing clips and talking about the themes that have come up. But I did I did have a little thing for Ed, actually, oh, yeah. if you want to stick around yeah. for this. Yeah. Now, this wasn't specifically for this episode, yeah. but um, Ed is a huge fan of the Boston Red Sox. Yes. And I know you, you talked a while ago about buying some memorabilia. I yes. think. Yeah. So then I was knocking around on one of these sports memorabilia yes. sites and I, I'm not a fan of any sports, yeah, yeah, let yeah. alone uh, uh, baseball. But I contacted one of these memorabilia sites in the States and I said, I, I have a friend who, who is uh, a Red Sox fan. Yeah. I'm guessing he sort of came of age as a fan in the 80s. That was where yeah, it was yeah, really yeah. solidified. said, if I wanted to get a yeah. signed baseball, I've got money to spend. Who is the most beloved Red Sox player yeah. of the 1980s? And this guy says, well, I mean, there is one, but it's a valuable thing to, to get a signed ball. So, you, you know, you're sure you want to spend the money? And I said, well, if it's a Red Sox player that, that is... is gonna wow yeah. him um then then sure so i've i've got i've got oh you a signed goodness, baseball Jeff. Uh, now the name means nothing to me but maybe if i give it to you and then you i won't guess who it is in case it turns out well, not why, to why be don't the you person try and, try and guess it's, well, I, he says it's the one that all red sox fans in the 80s are, are going to be wowed by and you know i think that's why he charged me a premium for it really well, that's incredibly nice is it carl yastrzemski it <laughs> isn't no I'm, I'm just handing it. I'm, I'm handing it over to Ed now. Bill Buckner. Bill Buckner. Is it? Oh my God, Bill Buckner! Like one of the greatest Red Sox players of all time. But right? you know the Bill Buckner story. What? What story? Well, Bill Buckner let, was the guy that let it through, let the ball through his legs in 1986, leading him to total disaster. And he couldn't go back to poor guy, and he couldn't go back to Boston for a long time afterwards. Um, so he, he's he's not the most beloved. No, 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 no. But it's like fantastic. Thank you so much. I knew that story. He crops oh, up did. in an episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm, oh, which is why I ended up getting it for you. In the that is incredibly <laughs> nice of you. Thank you. Well, happy 150th. Oh, that is so kind. And I haven't got you a present. Well, you got me the p- p- present of speaking to my mother-in-law Lynn, on, Lynn, on the you, phone. Lynn, you're my equivalent of Bill Buckner, the Bill Buckner baseball for Jeff. Oh, nobody said anything that nice since Sarah and I made up over our fight. Let's not get into that. (laughs) (laughs) Lynn, lovely to speak to you. Give our best to Joe. Happy, happy 150th. Thank Thank you. you. Bye. Bye. Don't we love Lynn Barron? Oh, she's great. Well, look, here's to 150. Here's to 150 uh, more. I, I, I want to be sort of serious for a minute. I sort of owe you a massive debt of gratitude. I really do. I mean, this podcast would never have happened without you suggesting it. Um, and I'm really grateful to you. We have a good time, don't we? No, but I think it's really... I'm quite moved. Um, well, I struggle with the compliments, so as you can see, I'm get, getting teary, <laughs> so you've got to stop this, otherwise no, no, I'll, no. Start, and I think I'll start blubbing on the podcast. Uh, and I think we sort of got to keep going, don't we? I think so. The ideas are out there. Yeah. Got to fix the world. And the world needs fixing. It does. 
Any other thoughts from you? Well, we've got lots of people to thank, haven't we? We do. I mean, firstly, we first and foremost, we should thank Emma, our producer, who is definitely sitting, she's she's the third she's come out the of lockdown. Yeah, it's the first time we've all seen each other in months and months and months. And she was there at the foundation. She was. I mean, we're, we're the three surviving members yeah. of the original lineup who yeah, were that's here true, every week. Actually, uh, so so there's that. Um, and and speaking of that, we should thank Lindsay, who sort of runs your life yes. and finds you time. Yes. To, to do yeah. the podcast every week and uh, our first researcher Alex Weissbryce definitely who has uh, moved on to Big, bigger and better well league. yeah slightly sticks in the throat saying it but he's doing alright yeah. for himself that boy and we were so lucky to find Joel Pierce definitely who came in uh, after Alex started the podcast up and Joel does an incredible yeah. job week in week out with the uh, with the episodes yeah. and all the research and finding the guests uh, also thanks to Joe Kenyon who provides Definitely. so much backup for um, for Joel and Zoe Gelber yes of course who that, that newsletter we Definitely. mentioned we love week, the it newsletter. wouldn't happen without her and if, if you think we've upped our social media game we recently, have because yeah. of Fanula DC that's right it's not us it's Fanula yeah. DC who's doing a great job with yeah. that um, and then Gail's voice you hear oh, every Gail week oh Gail it's great when we had Gail on the live show we in Sheffield we love Gail Lovetowels yeah and uh, James Deacon made the little idents that you yeah. hear in between things Ed, Ed, Ed Seed composed the music I you know emailed a friend and said do you know anybody who can make us a piece of music that is reminiscent of Ian Jury's reasons to be cheerful but in no way infringes on copyrights yeah. Ed Seed did exactly that and uh, Henry Cole I mean what artwork well Henry Cole and also we love Henry but let's not forget for those you know early episodes every week you would great, get great joy out of saying at least a hundred yeah yeah at least a hundred you would get great pleasure from saying Emily Power I think we should thank Annabelle that's nice Annabelle Port your co-presenter on Adrift she's very non-proprietorial about you she yeah. doesn't mind there being sort of three people in the podcast marriage no. she doesn't mind that I refer to that chair as Ed's chair not yeah. Annabelle's chair no yeah. she's a lovely she's a lovely person yeah. I think we should thank your wife Sarah Barron for being so kind of hospitable uh, funny intelligent warm encouraging Positive. Some of those words I wouldn't necessarily <laughs> use <laughs> with relation to Sarah. But, you know, if, if, we're, if we're really going for it, then we should thank the dame then, shouldn't we? We should thank Justine as well. Yes. Very encouraging. Yes. Um, she's been very, very... Uh, and your boys who've been to so many other live shows. Yes. And just always so great, Sam and Daniel. But, yeah, uh, thank you. Uh, thank you to everyone who works on the podcast. I think it's time for us to sign off it is in uh, in time-honored fashion he's been ed miliband he's been jeff lloyd and these have been 150 reasons to be cheerful <laughs> <laughs>